I'm very honoured to be here and to be speaking uh, as part of the 25th anniversary uh, of the Freud Museum since its opening here in Mesfield Gardens. So it's, it's really great to be here and it's really great to be celebrating the 25th anniversary. I wonder what Freud would think about that. Perhaps his ghost is wandering around somewhere tonight. While writing the interpretation of dreams in the late 1890s, Freud became an art collector, developing an obsession with antiquity, beauty, myth and archaeology that led him to amass a private museum of over 2,500 statues, vases, reliefs, busts, fragments of papyrus, rings, precious stones and prints. In Freud's study at Bergasse 19 Vienna, every available surface was crowded with antiquities. Freud's former apartment is now the Freud Museum Vienna, while his collection resides here at Maresfield Gardens, Freud's final refuge. Can we have the next slide? Next image, I should say. Ah, 800. I also have a cold, so if I start to say I'm a cross between Eartha Kitt and Darth Vader, <laughs> as the lecture continues, you will know why. Here's the famous couch. Freud wrote, I am no connoisseur in art, but simply a layman. Nevertheless, works of art do exercise a powerful effect on me. Despite this modest assertion, Freud's taste was precise and discerning, making his collection an intriguing catalogue of world civilizations where objects rare and sacred, useful and arcane, ravaged and lovely, are on display. Patients were taken by surprise when they were ushered into his rooms. Sergei Pankiev, known in his case study as the Wolfman, um, two of his paintings are actually out here in the, uh, in the vestibule out there, felt he was not in a doctor's office, but an archaeologist's study, surrounded by all kinds of statuettes and other unusual objects which even the layman recognised as archaeological finds from ancient Egypt. To Pankiev, the artworks from long-vanished epochs created a sense of sanctuary, a feeling of sacred peace and quiet. Everything here contributed to one's feeling of leaving the haste of modern life behind, of being sheltered from one's daily cares. The popular image of Freud as austere, remote and forbidding is contradicted by the collection, which reveals a very different personality. An impulsive, hedonistic spender, an informed and finicky aesthete, a tomb raider, often complicit in the illegal trade in antiquities, a tourist who revelled in sensual Mediterranean journeys, a generous fellow who lavished exquisite gifts on his family and friends, and a tough negotiator for a bargain. Though Freud prescribed the intense inner journey of psychoanalysis for his patients, his own therapy was shopping. <laughs> Freud may not have been able to choose his patients, but he could choose beautiful things with which to surround himself. I must always have an object to love, he confessed to Jung. Freud bought his first artworks in 1896, shortly after his father Jacob died. Freud wrote, People who are receptive to art cannot set too high a value on it as a source of pleasure, 
and consolation in life. Freud was shaken by his father's death. In my inner self, he reflected, I now feel quite uprooted. Jacob's death provoked a crisis during which Freud plunged into his own unconscious, the underground recesses of his buried self. The interpretation of dreams was the result of that painful and exhilarating journey of self-analysis, the foundation stone of his life's work. For Freud, mourning and art were aligned at this crucial transition. He built his collection during the Grand Era, archaeological discoveries. His hero was Heinrich Schliemann, the buccaneering amateur who in 1871 unearthed the site of Troy. In 1900, Arthur Evans found the Palace of Minos on Crete. Twenty years later, Howard Carter discovered Tutankhamun's tomb. Freud made archaeology the driving metaphor of psychoanalysis, telling one patient, the psychoanalyst, like the archaeologist, must uncover layer after layer of the patient's psyche before coming to the deepest, most valuable treasure. 230. Female figure Ishtar is from the Middle Bronze Age, that is, 2000 to 1750 BC. It's clay and it's 11.7 centimetres high. The oldest work in the collection is from the Orontes Valley, the most archaeologically rich site in Syria. As Freud believed that the first three years of life determine an individual's destiny, it is perhaps not surprising that he was drawn to collecting objects from the childhood of civilization. Ishtar was the region's super goddess, in charge of love, storms, fertility and war. Sacred prostitution was part of her worship. This figure was an offering to the goddess at one of her shrines. Originally, female figure was adorned. Her pierced ears held earrings, there were decorations in the socket in her forehead and her donut-shaped navel. Incisions on her thighs indicate her pudenda. Due to the vast number of figures offered to the gods by devout pilgrims, temple repositories had to be cleared out periodically and the old offerings buried in the vicinity of the god's shrine. Though Freud made a catalogue of his collection in 1914, it has been lost, so it is unknown where and when he bought most of his antiquities or how much he paid for them. 670. Egyptian art forms the heart and the majority of Freud's collection. What were its attractions? More than any other culture, Egypt revered beauty, elegance and grace, celebrating the body beautiful with sublime sorry, you got that didn't you? Yeah. Um, with sublime clarity and precision. Six six seven zero, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I probably wrote that down. Yep, yeah. that's her. Ah, she blows. The Egyptians were the first aesthetes, and Freud was an aesthete par excellence. Further, Egyptians' greatest achievement is sculpture, Freud's favourite art form. The Egyptians were also master builders. What they constructed, in particular the pyramids, lasted. An inspiring metaphor for Freud, master builder of psychoanalysis. Isis suckling the infant Horus is from the late period, the 26th dynasty, 664 to 525 BC. It's bronze and it's 21 centimetres high. 
In this lovely bronze, the Madonna is as svelte as a girl. Her clinging shift reveals pert breasts, trim hips, graceful elongated legs and feet. It is a modern body, where thinness qualifies as a factor in beauty's equation. Isis's features are exquisitely neat and symmetrical. Offering her breast to her son, she's a study in harmony and balance. Restrained, composed, girlish, slim, Egypt's all-powerful female deity provides an image of femininity that Freud found attractive. Isis is the prototype for the Christian Madonna. The story of how Freud acquired Isis offers a good example of how undervalued antiquities were in his lifetime and how he managed to amass such a large collection on a limited budget. In 1935, Robert, Lu Robert Lustig, Freud's favourite Viennese antiquities dealer, spotted the statue in a junk shop in the countryside. When he asked the price, the shop owner put the statue on the scale to weigh it, and Lustig bought it for the price of the metal. Isis is a high point of Freud's collection and was given an honoured place on his desk. Though it is a common representation of the goddess, Freud's example is superior to similar examples in the Kunsthistorische Museum or in the Louvre. 780. Hope I hope I've got this one right. Freud's statue of Athena goddess of wisdom, war and the arts was his favourite piece. You can see it next door in the, uh, in the gallery in there. And can we move straight on now to 927. I want to show you uh, the statue sitting on Freud's desk. Here we go. This is, this is where Freud placed it on his desk, right in the centre of his desk. He bought this uh, sometime after 1914. During the analysis of Hilda Doolittle, the American poet, he picked up Athena and handed it to her. This, he said, is my favourite. She is perfect, only she has lost her spear. Athena is far from perfect. Some of Freud's major artworks like Isis made their journey from the ancient world to his apartment relatively unscathed. But Athena seems to have something of a rough ride. A Roman bronze from around the 1st century AD, she has been copied from a 5th century Greek original. As you can see, she is so small, only 10 centimetres high, that she can be almost overlooked on the Pantheon on Freud's desk. Freud's construction of femininity was problematic and phallic. He seemed incapable of imagining women's potential beyond the pale of convention. Yet Freud, especially in his later years, was surrounded by smart, ambitious, sophisticated women such as Princess Marie Bonaparte, Lou Andreas Salome, Joan Riviere and his daughter Anna. It seemed that Freud was adept at demarcating zones. Theories of the feminine occupied one area, while Freud's vital admiration and encouragement of such women occupied another. Athena is a masculine goddess. As the protector of Athens, the Parthenon was her temple. Despite the fact that in ancient Greece women were treated a little better than slaves, Greek culture had no trouble in conjuring authentic images of feminine power and authority. Athena is the most compelling. She was the daughter of Zeus, his favourite child. Her birth was spectacular. She sprang fully fawn from Zeus's head with a triumphant cry of victory, armed and brandishing a sharp javelin. 
She was a fierce warrior who, with her enormous bronze-tipped spear, helped the Greeks fight the Trojans. Responsible and fair-minded, as well as a fierce fighter for those to whom she was committed, Athena was the embodiment of intellect and reason. Though Freud compared his daughter Anna to Antigone, the loyal daughter who followed her father Oedipus into exile, in fact, she played Athena to his Zeus. Nor can Freud have missed the point as far as it applied to Anna, the daughter who became her father's representative, his intellectual heir and a warrior for the cause of psychoanalysis, as well as the heiress of his art collection. The only time Freud's antiquities took their place elsewhere in his apartment in Vienna, as far as we know, was when Anna borrowed several to place on her desk. 190. This is the photo of Anna and Freud, <coughs> all dressed up on holiday. 1913. Bright, imaginative and headstrong, Anna had been attending meetings of the Vict Vienna Psychoanalytic Society since she was 14 and avidly read her father's work. The youngest child and the last one left at home, she longed for her father's attention after having to compete with older siblings, including Sophie, the favoured child of both parents. In 1914, she enrolled in a teacher training course, finally graduating as a primary school teacher. Freud told his colleague Sandor Ferenczi, she is incidentally developing charmingly, more gratifying than any of the other children. Freud began interpreting her dreams, often adventures with Anna as the hero. She wrote to him, I dreamed you were a king and I was a princess. Someone wanted to separate us by political intrigues. It was not at all nice and quite thrilling. Though Freud had published a study on little hands, the boy had not been his patient and children were not his specialty. Childhood, the foundation zone of psychoanalysis, became Anna's realm. She was a gifted teacher of children, warm, kind, firm and methodical, remembered fondly by her young charges. Anna managed to subvert Freud's dictum for his children. None of the boys would study medicine, one doctor in the family was enough, while his daughters received a second-rate education that prevented them from studying at university. It meant the boys could not compete with Papa and the girls were destined to be wives and mothers. But Anna contested these rules and bent them to her will. In 1918, she won her father's permission to train as a psychoanalyst and began a four-year analysis with him. Extremely long by standards then. A secret kept from all but their closest colleagues. Though it seems bizarre that a daughter could undergo analysis with her father, at the time it was difficult to find another analyst in Vienna whom Anna did not know and in whom she could fully put her trust. The history of psychoanalysis is one of bruising dissensions and defections. So there was the worrying possibility that intimate details, even among staunch friends, might eventually leak out. For Anna, it offered the chance of a closer bond with her father, as well as an incomparable education in her chosen profession. In 1922, Anna set up her practice at Bergasa 19. She shared with Freud a delight in beauty and aesthetics. She developed a taste for exquisite necklaces, and Freud gave her some fine examples as birthday presents, 
including jade and pearls. When Freud was stricken with cancer of the upper palate and no longer spoke publicly, Anna became his voice, representing him at conferences and other functions. She was also his nurse, consigned the ghastly task of examining his mouth each morning to check for signs of developing lesions. In March 1938, the German army occupied Austria. Not that the majority of Viennese minded, they welcomed Hitler with open arms, crowding into Heldenplatz in their thousands to cheer their Führer. A quarter of a million people, over a third of the population of Vienna, participated in the spontaneous, unorchestrated public jubilation. It surprised even Hitler, who had expected a bloody denouement to his long-cherished goal to merge Austria with Germany. When Freud read that his favourite newspaper, the formerly liberal Neue Free Presse, trumpeted the glorious unification of Austria with Germany, he threw it away in disgust. It was also the end of a glittering epoch that began around the turn of the century and had made Vienna one of Europe's most notable cities. Freud had helped to put it on the map too, whether the Viennese liked it or not. He was part of a wave of gifted and determined Jewish men and women who had helped to transform the city, not only through the arts, science and business, but as patrons, as the audience for the cultural display for which Vienna was renowned. That Vienna was destroyed overnight. The most immediate evidence of Nazi rule were the shameless attacks on Jewish people, their homes and businesses. Jews were not safe to walk the streets because they no longer had the protection of law. Nazi gangs roamed Vienna, beating up Jewish citizens, smashing their shops, looting their homes and forcing them to perform demeaning public acts <coughs> such as scrubbing pavements or writing Yud, Jew, on the walls or windows of their businesses, watched by jeering crowds. German Nazis were impressed by the Viennese and took their style of terror campaign back home. Not that it shocked the young photographer Edmund Engelmann. The hatred of Jews in Vienna was nothing new to me. We had always lived with it, without a thought of leaving the city. It was part of Vienna, just like the cafes. It seemed almost taken for granted, the price we played for our pleasures. But now, it was different. <coughs> With lightning speed, Jewish businesses were forcibly liquidated, dwellings seized, and religious and cultural institutions confiscated or destroyed. Panic gripped Vienna's Jewish population, and plans to emigrate dominated the conversation. Jews stood in queues at embassies, consulates, shipping companies and government offices, desperate for papers exit visas, transit visas, receipts for tax payments, clearance forms, boat and train tickets. Though Freud had always reviled Vienna, he could not accept that he had to leave. He prevaricated, like many who did not believe that Germany would allow itself to be ruled by barbarians, telling a friend, a nation that has produced Goethe could not possibly go to the bad. In mid-March, Freud's English colleague Ernest Jones flew from, flew from London excuse me, and Princess Marie Bonaparte arrived from Paris to persuade Freud to go. Both were already actively engaged in securing his safe passage to London. 
But the event that changed Freud ma Freud's mind occurred on March 22, when the Gestapo raided Bergasse 19 and arrested Anna, taking her to the infamous Hotel Metropole, Gestapo headquarters. Freud was terrified for Anna, knowing she could be summarily dispatched to a concentration camp or shot. He spent the day in his study with Max Schur, his doctor. The hours were endless, Schur recalled. It was the only time I saw Freud deeply worried. He paced the floor, smoking incessantly. Anna, however, successfully conducted her interview with the Gestapo, convincing them that the International Psychoanalytical Association was scientific and non-political and not a terrorist organisation. When she arrived home that evening, plans to leave Vienna were immediately put in place. Though neither Anna nor Martin, Freud's oldest son, told their father, they had asked Stuart to supply them with lethal doses of Veronal in case of arrest and torture. Freud's attitude was more robust. Wouldn't it be better if we all killed ourselves, Anna had suggested. Why, retorted Freud, because they would like us to? In the months following the Nazi occupation, there were 1,300 suicides in Vienna, and many of those were Jewish. Others fled by whatever means they could, and to whichever country would take them, and few would. A joke circulated in the Jewish community. What language are you learning? Answer, the wrong one. Signs went up at the British and French consulates in Vienna, stating no more visas would be issued. As the journalist Paul Hoffman recalls, no one who was a witness can evade the memory of the overwhelming majority of the Viennese denying help to or active compassion for their Jewish fellow citizens. But Freud had some powerful angels. Firstly, Bonaparte and Jones had considerable international contacts. When Anna was arrested, Bonaparte, a protective presence at Bergasse 19, had gamely asked to be arrested too. But the Gestapo refused. The diplomatic consequences of having a princess of Greece in custody was too much of a headache. The Americans also became involved in Freud's case. William Bullitt, the US ambassador to France, was a friend of Franklin D. Roosevelt. He was also a former analysand of Freud's. Bullitt took the matter directly to Roosevelt who instructed Cordell Hull, the Secretary of State, to personally supervise Freud's passage to England. <clears throat> Such high-level negotiations assured Freud of preferential treatment. He asked for, and got, British visas for 14 people besides himself. Included were his wife Martha and her sister Minna, their children and his, his children and their families still in Vienna, Max Schur and his family, as well as Paula Fichtel, their longtime domestic helper. Freud's brother Alexander had fled to Canada, and Freud's son Ernst had already settled in London. Of his five elderly sisters, only Anna was safely living overseas in New York. The remaining four, Mitzi, Dolphy, Rosa, and Paula, were trapped in Vienna, though Anna and Princess Marie Bonaparte desperately tried to assist their passage out. They were forced to live in cramped, miserable conditions in a collective apartment until between 1942 and 1943, 
they were transported to different concentration camps, including Theresienstadt, where they perished. <clears throat> Even when Jews had obtained visas, the Nazis placed bureaucratic hurdles in their way. First was the refugee tax, an assessment of taxable assets that stripped Jewish people of their money and property, so they left Austria as paupers. Next was the Declaration of No Impediment, a document that meant all taxes and debts had been paid and without which no one could leave. For Freud, there was an added complication. He insisted on taking the entire art collection, making the tax a special worry. Fortunately, the person selected to value it was Hans van Demmel, a curator at the Kunsthistorischer, whom Freud knew and who had authenticated several works for him. Anxiously, Freud waited to hear von Demmel's assessment. Then he wrote to Minna, his sister-in-law, who was safe in London. The one piece of good news is that my collection has been released. Not a single seizure. Only a small payment of 400 Reichsmarks. Director Demmel of the museum was very merciful. He assessed it all at only 30,000 Reichsmarks. But that leaves us far below the tax limit for refugees. The removers can begin packing without delay. To his credit, von Demmel deliberately undervalued the collection, saving it from being confiscated by the Nazis. And on the 25th of May, Freud received the required certificate. But still, he waited on the declaration of no impediment. In the tense days of late May, Edmund Engelmann arrived at Bergasse 19. Born in 1907, he had grown up in the Leopoldstadt, a suburb where Freud and many Jewish people lived. In 1932, he opened Photo City, an innovative, centrally located shop and studio, which became well known for the latest photographic equipment, ideas and techniques. August Eichhorn, a friend and colleague of Freud's, asked Engelmann to meet him at a cafe. Eichhorn, who was not Jewish and belonged to a well-to-do Austrian family, was a socially concerned teacher who employed psychoanalytic techniques in the treatment of troubled adolescents. Engelmann remembered Eichhorn was very upset and looked around nervously to see if we were being watched or overheard. Eichhorn told Engelmann that Freud was leaving for London within days and it was of the utmost importance that the collection and the apartment be recorded. Engelmann, an admirer of Freud's, was thrilled at the prospect. But Eichhorn alerted him to the problems. The Gestapo were conducting a surveillance of the Freud's apartments. Undue attention must not be drawn to Engelmann's project. Therefore, no flash or floodlights could be used. It created a technical problem for Engelmann. Film then was not as light sensitive as it is today. Aikon also advised Engelmann that Freud, now very frail, would not be present. Though disappointed not to meet his hero and recognising that he was placing himself in danger, Engelmann agreed. Acorn had chosen the right photographer, as we'll look at in a minute. Engelmann's precise, sensitive and luminous studies of Bergasse 19 not only provide a record of its contents, but are works of art in themselves, a homage to the collection. 
As Susan Sontag observes, even functional photographs become studies in the possibilities of photography. Uh, now we go to 768. <coughs> Thanks. That cool, rainy morning in Maine, well, here we can see Bergasa 19, the entrance to Freud's um, apartment building, and we can see the Nazi insignia, which is now hanging over the, uh, the door. Looks exactly the same today, if any of you have ever been there. Thankfully, there's no Nazi insignia over the door, though. That cool, rainy morning, Engelman was nervous as he approached Bergasa. In a small valise, he had packed two excellent cameras, a Leica and a Rollerflex, together with a tripod and as much film as he can fit. He began by documenting the street, the building and the staircase on which Freud had walked thousands of times, following the route taken by everyone who had ever visited there. Uh, 947. <coughs> he even photographed Freud's front door. His plan was to take as many pictures as I could from positions where Freud usually stood or sat. I wanted to see things the way Freud saw them, with his own eyes, during the long hours of his treatments, his treatment sessions as he sat writing. Um, 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 oh no. Actually, we could go to 980. No, no, wait. I've got a cold, you know. I'm not quite with it. Um, uh, when Engelman entered Freud's sanctum, he was overwhelmed by the masses of figurines which overflowed on every surface. Though he knew Freud had a collection, his best friend was one of uh, Freud's, uh, the son of one of Freud's antiquities dealer. He had no idea of its extent. He had to tear himself away from examining each work in detail and address himself to the task. There was little available light, especially as the weather was gloomy, so Engelman turned on all the electric lights, hoping he wouldn't attract the attention of the Gestapo. <coughs> Engelman's photographs show that by 1938, Freud could barely move in his study because of the number of antiquities. We see here... Rising from his desk, he had to swing his chair at a 90-degree angle to slide out between the desk and the table, both loaded with statues and other items. Nor was the collection static. Over Engelman's three-day visit, he observed how objects were moved, both by Freud and Paula Fichtel, when she dusted them. So from one day to the next, they would be in slightly different positions. 792... Now, uh, remember the photograph that I showed you before on Freud's desk with the statue of Athena just behind this little jade screen? It's gone. Where has it gone? <laughs> Freud had given it to Princess Marie Bonaparte to smuggle out of Vienna. When it seemed he would lose his entire collection to the Nazis, he selected Athena to be smuggled out to represent all that the collection meant to him. The apartment looks calm and orderly, but the camera creates an illusion. What seemed stable and solid was melting into air. Engelman staged a recreation not only of Bergasa 19, but of a world that was being destroyed. 
Freud's home was about to disappear, and so was a way of life. For millions of Jewish people, life was not only changing, it was ending. During the photo sessions, to Engelman's delight, there was a chance meeting with Freud. While Engelman was working in the study, Freud arrived unexpectedly. As Engelman recalled, we stared at each other with equal astonishment. And if we could go back to 995, <coughs> we started with. This is uh, Engelman's wonderful photograph of Freud sitting in his desk. Then Acorn stepped in and explained Engelman's assignment to Freud. Engelman, who had prepared an album of the pictures he had already taken, immediately offered it to Freud as a souvenir. Freud was gracious with his thanks. Engelman seized the opportunity and asked if he could take Freud's photograph. Freud sits at his desk, gazing at his antiquities, a touching farewell to his personal museum. On the 2nd of June, Freud finally received the Declaration of No Impediment, and two days later, Freud and his entourage left Vienna on the Orient Express and with great relief passed into France. Princess Marie Bonaparte whisked the Freuds off to her mansion at Saint-Cloud on the outskirts of the city. Later, Freud told Bonaparte the one day, and of course she gave him back Athena, she reunited him with Athena, the one day in your house in Paris restored our good mood and sense of dignity. After being surrounded by love for 12 hours, we left, proud and rich, under the protection of Athena. Soon the Freuds were settled in the beautiful city of London, in a furnished house at 39 Ellsworthy Road, while a search began for a permanent residence. Freud liked the place at the foot of Primrose Hill, because from his window he saw nothing but greenery. The enchantment of his new surroundings, Freud told a colleague, made him want to shout, Heil Hitler! But he admitted the feelings aroused by leaving Vienna were hard to grasp, almost indescribable. The feeling of triumph on being liberated is too strongly mixed with sorrow, for in spite of everything, I greatly loved the prison from which I have been released. Freud was a celebrity in London, deluged with flowers, gifts and letters of welcome, making him declare England was a blessed, a happy country inhabited by well-meaning, hospitable people. Soon he was receiving letters addressed to Dr. Freud, London, or overlooking Regent's Park. As Freud remarked, the mail included a surprising number of letters from complete strangers who simply wanted to express their delight at our having escaped to safety and who expect nothing in return. In short, for the first time and late in life, I have experienced what it is to be famous. Soon there were good news about the antiquities. Freud's diary entry for 7th, 7th to the 8th of August is laconic. Things arrived, but his relief was immense. Though the Nazis agreed to release the collection, Freud had remained unsure, telling a colleague, the gangsters are unpredictable. Shortly after, Freud's first visit to his new home Twenty Maresfield Gardens took place. Our own house, Freud wrote in delight, and far too beautiful for us, because they didn't own the apartment in, uh, in Vienna. They only rented it, as most people in most European cities do. <coughs> Meanwhile, Ernst Freud, an architect, was renovating the house. A major task for Ernst was to accommodate Freud's study, 
by making one large room from two downstairs connecting rooms. 20 Maresfield Gardens is a big, comfortable, sunny home. Built in the 1920s in Queen Anne style, Ernst Freud described it as Neo-Georgian. With its spacious, light-filled rooms and large back gardens, it's reminiscent of the houses the Freuds rented during their summer holidays in the outskirts of Vienna, the kind of house they could never afford to buy. On the 27th of September, the family moved in, Freud telling a colleague, we have it incomparably better than at Bergasa. Soon the task of unpacking the antiquities was underway. Even after the boxes were deposited safely at Maresfield Gardens, Freud was uncertain that everything had arrived intact. Remarkably, nothing had been broken, lost or stolen. The gods had undergone another perilous journey across time and space and survived. The collection was arranged in spacious new premises by the team of Ernst Freud, Ernst Chris and Paula Fichtel. Chris, a psychoanalyst and former curator at the Kunsthistorischer, was an authority on Renaissance gold work and gems. He was a colleague of Freud's, familiar with the collection. He had also fled Vienna and was waiting to leave for New York. Paula Fichtel had memorised the arrangement of the key works on Freud's desk and reproduced it at Maresfield Gardens. Freud was too unwell to engage in such a laborious task. He had recently undergone another terrible operation on his mouth from which he never fully recovered, becoming more and more frail. But Freud's condition did not stop him appreciating his new surroundings. He particularly revelled in the large garden, its beds and borders well stocked with flowers and shrubs and rows of high trees that secluded it from neighbouring houses. And there are those trees, just out the window. As Ernest Jones recalled, Freud spent as much time as possible in this garden and he was provided with a comfortable swing lounge couch shaded by a canopy. His consulting room, filled with his loved possessions, opened through French doors directly into the garden. The natural world, always a place of regeneration and inspiration for Freud, was now closely linked to the collection. Nature, the, the title of the essay that in first inspired Freud to study medicine, is the source of all myth. But Freud also recognised the dark side of Mother Earth, the inescapable, silent goddess of death. That goddess now drew near. Freud continued to see patients and was delighted with the publication of Moses and Monotheism, his final inflammatory text. On the 3rd of September 1939, after Hitler had invaded Poland, Churchill declared war against Germany. Freud was extremely ill. That day, when an air raid siren sounded in Hampstead, he was lying on his couch in the garden, watching as Paula and his family took steps to safeguard the antiquities. Though the siren turned out to be a false alarm, Freud's bed was moved to the safe zone of the house, his study, from where he could still see the garden and where he was surrounded by his antiquities. Freud retained his interest in current affairs, and when Max Schuer wondered if this could be the last war, Freud commented dryly, my last war. Freud was suffering. It was difficult to feed him, his nights were miserable, and he could hardly leave his bed. On the 21st of September, when Schur was sitting in his bedside, Freud took his hand and said, 
My dear Cheryl, you certainly remember our first talk. You promised me then not to forsake me when my time comes. Now it's nothing but torture and makes no sense anymore. Reluctantly, Cheryl agreed. Freud paused. Tell Anna about this. Shua then asked Anna to agree to her father's decision, which sorrowfully she did. Then Shua administered two centigrams of morphine and Freud fell into a peaceful sleep. He died surrounded by the objects that were precious of him, to him, many of which symbolised the journey to the underlife. Freud left the antiquities to Anna. She proved a most reliable curator, keeping the entire collection intact, aside from donating some works to the Freud Museum in Vienna when it opened in 1941. Occasionally, Anna held meetings and ceremonies relating to psychoanalysis in Freud's study, and guests were often given a quick tour. But by and large, the room was kept closed. Anna wanted to keep her father's part of the house just as it was, a memorial to him. In 1947, Anna founded the Hampstead Clinic, now the Anna Freud Clinic, at 21 Maresfield Gardens. The same year, Dorothy Burlingham, Anna's companion, who worked with her, moved in. They were together until Dorothy's death in 1979. There was something else that Anna safely kept. Edmund Engelmann had also fled Austria not long after the Freuds. All he could take with him was one piece of hand luggage. He thought of his precious Freud negatives, but it was too risky to include them. He decided to leave them with August Eichhorn. Finally, with his fiancée, Engelmann made his way to America. This is, I'm now quoting from Engelmann. <clears throat> as soon as it was possible after the war, I began the search for my negatives, writing first to August Acorn. Acorn did not live at his old address, and my letter, my letter never found him. Vienna had been heavily bombed, many apartment buildings were destroyed, and it was difficult to locate anybody in the post-war confusion. When I finally learned his new address and tried to establish contact, I had heard that he had died. The family had given the negatives to Acorn's former secretary, a Miss Regulay. I decided to take a trip to Europe in search of my negatives. In Vienna, I learned that Miss Regulay had sent them on to Anna Freud in London for safekeeping. I travelled to London and called Anna Freud, who confirmed she had my negatives and she would gladly return them to me. I went to her house at Maresfield Gardens, gratefully picked up the negatives and was given a tour of the house by Paula, the Freud's housekeeper, whom I knew from Vienna. I was moved to see once more the beautiful pieces of art which I had last seen under such different circumstances. Anna lived at Maresfield Gardens until her death in 1982. It is a touching fact that in her later years, too frail to walk, she was taken to Hampstead Heath by wheelchair and she always wrapped herself in Freud's overcoat. When in June 1986, Maresfield Gardens opened to the public as the Freud Museum, everything was just as Anna had left it. The antiquities stand on his desk with Athena in central position. Nearby is Isis suckling the infant Horus. The exquisite rug is on the couch. The visitor's first impression is of a marvellous museum, quiet as a tomb. But gradually the objects, in their abundance and diversity, their beauty and vitality, clamour for attention, making it not a silent place, 
but one animated by the pagan splendour that Freud adored. Thank you. obviously had people ready because he talks about, you know, that people could move in and start packing everything up. I mean, Freud used to do, he was so attached to the collection that when he stopped being able to go on his sort of Mediterranean journeys, which he used to love to do over summer, um, because with his illness, with the cancer, he had to stay close to Vienna, he used to, he and Martha used to um, rent these sort of large houses on the outskirts of Vienna, and he would pack up half the collection and take it with him. And as Anna an made some sort of rather dry comment, you know, moving house is always a rather large enterprise for us. Um, so it would be sort of Anna, Paula, probably um, Paula, Fichtel, the, the servant, maid servant. And, and usually it was, of course, you know, these were like the key, these were like the key items that he always wanted to take with him. This uh, statue of Neith, the baboon of Thoth, the Sphinx, of course, up here, that Isis that I showed you, Athena. You know, the, the things on his desk were always the, sort of the most precious ones. But I really think there were two and a half thousand antiquities and they used to pack up half of them. So presumably they were, they were pretty adept at doing packing, you know. I mean, probably, you know, probably Anna and Paula would have, you know, the, the sort of removalists, etc., would have come in. I imagine they would have packed them in, in, uh, in straw, you know, perhaps straw and um, paper. You know, just they would have had to, like... Well, they would have had to wrap every single thing up, um, which they did, and then ship the whole thing out. And, of course, he brought all of his furniture, too. So the, the, the moving from the apartment was a really massive task. Mm. Yes. Could you say something about the significance of some of his, his favourite... His favourite pieces? In, 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 in his analysis of people. Oh, OK. Well, he used to pick the, the thing, like I, I mentioned with Athena, you know, that he picked Athena up and gave... Her to um, to Hilda Doolittle, and, and in her book she's got a, writes a marvelous kind of memoir of her analysis with Freud, and she talks about you know why did he pick up this thing and not another thing, and you know what was he doing, and was he, you know was that accidental? Did he plan you know to pick that particular work up and give it to me? Um, something like Athena, I mean for um, for um, Hilda Doolittle, who was um, bisexual and predominantly a lesbian, I mean, to give her the Athena is probably about looking at the, the warrior woman, you know, the masculinised aspect of herself. Um, <clears throat> I'm just trying to think of some of the other things that he picked up. He used to pick up this baboon of Thoth here, which is quite a heavy um, marble statue. Um, the ceramic works like the Sphinx, I doubt if he'd ever pick up. So he tended to pick up things that were reasonably hardy, that were either made of bronze or marble, so if somebody actually dropped them. Sometimes he'd be disappointed. I think sometimes he was actually giving people things to hold to get them to appreciate them, you know, because he gave them... One person remembered that, you know, they, they sort of stood there and looked at it, and Freud sort of said to this chap, uh, not very interested in art, are you? Really? <laughs> um, and this guy said, no, not really. Um, and he used to give some of them... He collected a lot of um, little... Um, Call them lamps, little ceramic lamps that he used to often give as gifts to people. I think he was actually trying to get people interested in antiquities. Uh, and he said something really <coughs> quite interesting to 
um, Hilda Doolittle, when she walked in, you know, not into this room, she was in the antechamber, I think, before they went in here, because this was like the sanctum of sanctums, you know, I mean, the, the outside was where the patients usually were, but if you were kind of a privileged patient like her, he'd kind of go in and get something and then come out and, and give it to you to hold, and, you know, so this was a sort of special thing. And, you know, she, when she walked in, she was in classes, I mean, she had immense knowledge of like classical mythology and classical civilization. She was stunned, you know, and she sort of looked around and said, oh, this collection is incredible, you know. And he said, do you know you're the first person who's walked in here and looked at the collection before they've looked at me? And then he said, but why are you looking at these dead things and not looking at me? So this is how he began the analysis, you know. Um, and I think sometimes he gave people things to hold to, to relax them. You know, they'd be quite nervous, you know. And so he'd give them something to sort of, almost like a toy, something to hold. Um, I haven't got a... I've, some of the things that I, I've shown you, like the Isis suckling the infant Horus, Athena, the baboon of Thoth, um, these were sort of key works that, he, that were very special to him. And I think if you look at the objects on the desk, um, they often tend to be the works that he liked the most, and most of those would be Egyptian, because Egyptian art was really his favourite. Yes? Related to that, I mean, to what extent do you think Freud is attracted to particular figures because of what they represent? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, I sort of, you know, I think... You know, if you collect two and a half thousand objects, it's not going to be because you're just interested in exemplifying your theories or whatever. And I think a lot of people have a kind of reductive attitude towards the collection and they say, oh, look, there's a sphinx, a sphinx, you see, it's a sphinx. But, you know, um, he collected a couple of sphinxes, but not many. Um, Osiris, really, the, the Egyptian god Osiris was the most represented de deity in his collection and after that would be Eros. And, of course, Freud developed, um, you know, Eros, the, the, the libido, the, you know, the love force of, of psychoanalysis um, was a very powerful aspect of his own theoretical thinking. I think it went both ways, you know. I think he was a true collector. I think he was an obsessive collector. I mean, you don't collect two and a half thousand objects if you're just looking to exemplify your theories. And he collected, you know, Chinese art and he collected some Indian things and he collected, you know, Neolithic tools and... He collected an immense range of objects far beyond his own theories. But, you know, he certainly used, as I said, archaeology as the driving metaphor for psychoanalysis. And, you know, he was writing, um, he was writing the interpretation of dreams while this was happening. And fortunately, we have his, you know, correspondence with Wilhelm Fleece as he was doing that. So we know some of the works that he was collecting. He talks quite a lot um, in interpretation of dreams about different works that he's collecting. He never fully devotes like a whole book or a whole essay to his to art or to his art collection. But he, it, 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 it's like a thread that you have to kind of follow through, you know. I think he was very proud of getting bargains. I mean, one of the reasons he enjoyed travelling to, to Rome or to, to Florence or to Berlin or wherever he went to was to, was to buy uh, more antiquities. And he had a whole range of dealers in Vienna who, once they realised how keen he was, would, you know, would come and visit him, would ring him up and you know, arrive with a tray of things and say, you know, Professor Freud, would you like this or that or the other thing, you know. And, um, and, he, and he really sort of kept that going. He would keep his interest going. 
And he did say to somebody, you know, if I lose the whole collection and I can't get it out of Vienna, I'll start again. I'll start a new collection in London. You know, he certainly wasn't going to stop collecting, just, I mean, which is the true collector. You know, I, I did a lot of research into collecting when I was writing the book because, it, you know, I'm not a collector. It's, it's, an, it's a particular attitude. And if a collector stops collecting one thing, they'll, they'll start collecting something else. They're not going to collect stamps. They'll collect teapots. They'll collect teapots. Off, you know, they'll collect something else. And so, um, yeah, there's a bit of a conquistadorial kind of element to it all. Um, and enough was never enough. He, he could never have enough things, you know. So you can see there that, you know, everything, and <coughs> Engelman's photographs are, are fascinating because they show you that really there's, there's no, there's hardly any space at all. Um, and it fascinated me as a writer. I mean, the very idea of, of writing at a desk that was, you know, maybe only that big, and, you know, most of it was actually full, filled with objects that one could knock over quite easily, you know, fills me with dread. You know, but Freud seemed to enjoy that extremely, um, almost like a kind of claustrophobic environment filled with all these objects. So it's, it's interesting about, you know, spatiality. I mean, his idea of what space was and how one occupied a space. Um, because there's very little room on that desk for him to write or move or to make any mistakes at all. And he boasted some of his writings about, you know, how people would come in and say, oh, you know, how amazing that you, you've never knocked anything over. say, no, I've never knocked anything over. <laughs> you know, he was sort of quite proud of this, you know, um, that he could occupy this space without sort of damaging anything. And he could have, you know, more and more of these objects kind of surrounding him. And quite large objects. Interestingly enough, this figure of Neath here was given to him by Sergei Pakhier, the wolf man. Um, who only realised this when he saw Edmund Engelman's photographs years later and, and saw the statue of Neith. <coughs> Freud had a couple of statues of Neith. She's an Egyptian warrior goddess. She's very similar to Athena. And it was this statue of Neith that Anna used to have on her desk in her room. It's interesting that she chose a warrior goddess um, for her own desk. Excuse me. What is the original? Oh, sorry? The original. The original what? Uh, well, it's a photograph, so the original is actually with um, Engelman's sons. You don't have a print here? Uh, no, not the original prints. They, they lease them out. They lease them out to people. Um, the exhibition I took to Australia, we, um, we borrowed, paid, you know, to borrow several original um, photographs from the two Engelman sons who sort of leased them out. Sorry? I know, it's beautiful. And the, uh, they're beautiful photographs because they've got that really amazing density. You know, the blacks are really deep. They're very luminous photographs. They're very, they're very moving. They're certainly the best photographs um, Engelman ever took. You know, I don't know. I, I know he still worked as a photographer and he went to America. But um, these are just, you know, they're really works of art in themselves. They're, they're very beautiful and evocative works. There is a book, uh, I guess, in 19, which... Yes, yes, yes. Mm. It's published by the Freud Museum Vienna. Mm. Yeah, they publish a couple, and they're used extensively in, in uh, reproducing um, Freud's apartment. And we usually have some of the um, photos here, but they're not at the moment, but they're usually in the dining room. Mm. What was Martha's attitude to 
husband's collected. Well, look, I think it's very interesting to look at um, the other photographs of the rest of the apartment, and the rest of the apartment just looks like a really banal, bourgeois, um, Viennese apartment. You know, there's nothing special about it at all. You know, I mean, we're looking at some of the furniture. They, you know, they had nice furniture. It was, you know, solid furniture. It was meant to last. They, he didn't, uh, Engelman didn't take photographs of the bedrooms. But he did take photographs of the dining room and Minna's study and yeah, kind of the other living areas. And um, they're most unremarkable. I don't, think, I, mean, I don't think Martha liked them because they certainly didn't find their way into the rest of the apartment. I mean, it's like the apartment was this, it's almost like a facade, you know, like the apartment is just a sort of boring, banal, bourgeois sort of apartment. And then you walk into this. You know, to this kind of opulent, luxurious, you know, sort of um, incredible zone, you know, full of luscious Persian rugs and thousands of antiquities and um, this really extraordinary place that, that Freud created. So, uh, she didn't write anything in her letters. Mm -hmm. She didn't write, I mean, <clears throat> she, she didn't write anything sort of criticising or supporting or... No, I, d I, yeah. I don't think she probably would have would have done that. I mean, maybe that <coughs> demarcation was that was her zone, you know, the zone of the family, and you know, she was a tremendous housekeeper and she ran everything really brilliantly. And we know that Freud did feel a bit disappointed after their marriage because they had this very passionate sort of courtship by letter, and they talked about books, and I think he thought it was going to be more of an intellectual relationship than it turned out to be. Um, he sort of had those intellectual relationships later in his life with. Princess Marie Bonaparte and, and different women, but uh, not really with his wife. So, no, I don't think it's something that she really seemed to take in. You know, she found these theories quite, you know, shocking as well, you know. She was a bit uncomfortable with them too. So, um, yeah. Sorry, another question. Um, is there any evidence that he analysed his own collecting habits? No, he didn't. No, no, he didn't. He didn't. No, from, I mean, I tracked through all of his writings to find out what, you know, what he talked about in terms of that. And he, you know, he used sometimes he used them in different examples, and he'd say, you know, this made me think of this particular amazing vase, and you know, different things would come up uh, a, a lot about his travels and the interpretation of dreams. But you know, he never analysed his his collection. You know, there, there's few interesting comments. You know. The love of art is, you know, consolation and these kinds of things. And of course, the other fascinating thing that he never analysed was his addiction to cigars, you know. And I think he didn't want to analyse that because to analyse it would have to bring it in conscious mind. They have to do something about it. And I mean, even after you know he's lost most of his upper palate um, from cancer, and people knew then that smoking caused cancer, and everybody begged him to stop smoking. He absolutely refused to stop smoking. You know, smoking till the day he died. Yet it changed his life, put him in terrible pain, and in a really like it was quite like disgusting, really, because he'd lost the top of his mouth, the inside of his mouth, his palate. So, um, and after one operation, you know, he wrote to Sandor Ferenczi, um, like it was a joke, you know, he had this operation. I think his jaw was wired up or something, but he wanted he wanted a cigar. So he stuck a peg in his mouth and prized his mouth open with a peg and stuck a cigar in. And he told the story like it was a joke. It was like revolting, you know. Like what level of obsession is that? So yes, there were some things he just did not touch. Mm.
We don't know anything about what his, you know, like sex life was with Martha, like, you know, the curtain came down. So he was very cunning in a lot of ways for all. He said, oh, everybody will want to know this. He wrote this letter, he said, I've burnt all these papers, he said to Martha. Ha ha, I left the biographers, you know, because they won't find out anything. <laughs> he knew. <laughs> I think my voice is kind of... Well, can I thank you very much? It was fascinating. I was amazing to think about these things. And here they are in the house yeah. downstairs. Yeah, they are. So, uh, thank you so much for that really my interesting pleasure. look at the collections. And please come back and have another look at the collections. Mm. So, thank you. Thanks.